everyone. Uh, thanks for tuning in. This is episode 147 of Greater Than Code. I am one of your panelists, Jamie Hampton, and I'm here um, with Jacob Stobel. Hi, and I'm here with my friend, John Sowers. Thanks, Jacob. And I'm here with our guest, Jennifer Tu. Jennifer, after a dozen or so years working in operations development and engineering management, she co-founded Cohere, a tiny consultancy. She focuses on coaching people looking for change in their workplace from individual contributors through executives and gets to mix this work with writing code. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. I think you know the first question we're going to ask you, Jennifer. So let's start with that. Uh, What is your superpower and how did you acquire it? It was really hard picking one superpower to share. So I'll share this one, which is one of my superpowers is walking up to any process with people in it. So think about code review processes or your build process and immediately seeing any kind of inefficiencies that can be taken out. And where I got this, um, I had to think really hard about that one. And I realized I got this from my mom. And I didn't know until a couple of years ago that before she was raising kids full time, she was, she spent a few years being a software programmer in the eighties. And I think that must be where she developed a lot of this like inefficiency detection. And that was something that she passed on to me. Well, that's really cool that it came from a family connection rather than like you absorbed it ambiently in your youth rather than having to develop it intentionally. Or you probably did some intentional development uh, later on in your career, but it's cool that it started so young. How yeah, did, yeah, yeah. I think I, I think just whenever uh, we were doing something, going someplace, anytime that there was something where people were trying to accomplish something together, she would point out, oh, we could do it this way, and then this would be more efficient. And that was just something that was always going in the background. And sometimes it's annoying, like we'll go on a family vacation and she'll be like, all right, if we do A, B, C, and then D, then we'll have a perfect day. And that's that's a little bit much for me. But it was seeing that that made me realize, oh, that's where all of the good parts that I appreciate come from, too. Oh, that's great that you can you can take into account like the, the positives and negatives of that mindset, like see where it goes too far as well as where it really serves you. I agree. I think that's really healthy and cool. I wish I could take the negative as easily as I'm describing it. I'm definitely much more impatient as it's happening. As a coach, you probably have to, like, what questions do you have to ask in order to get to that perspective? Like, what do you have to know about your clients in terms of, like, what they're trying to optimize for or what their what their problems are? Like, what questions do you have to ask? Usually, I start by asking them what they want to change. For me... Uh, I focus on people who want to bring about change. So if you're pretty happy with where you are, then I would be a terrible coach for you because I'm very much, hey, you're happy. Why bother changing yourself? So so the first question I ask is, what kind of change are you looking for? And then uh, then we kind of go from there. Yeah, sure. Can you give an example without sharing too many details that I'm sure you're not able to share? So uh, one situation that does get brought to me pretty regularly is engineering leaders who want to change their organization because of growth, Um, especially as someone leaves that dozen or so engineers uh, situation and goes more to a 30 or 50 person organization. Um, You can't keep repeating the same thing that you've been doing. You can't say, oh, I'll manage one more person. And so one of the things that, that I work with is leaders who want to stop managing everyone in the organization and introduce a new layer of management. And usually when that happens, what we do is I ask about the change they're looking for. They describe this kind of a situation. And then I start digging into what they want to accomplish and what they want to keep the same and what they want to make different and what they hold to be really important that they don't want to let go of. And some of those things might be things they need to let go of. Like uh, if someone wants to stay connected with all of the individuals, then that's going to be something that you can't keep in the same way as you grow your organization. So staying connected might be possible, but staying connected in the same way isn't. And I help them think about how will this look? What will it feel like as my organization changes and exists under where I want them to go? And what do I want out of it? That seems like a really important change that so many organizations go through. That's like the 
the first really big change in organization. I guess you, you start with a small team that's a couple of people and there maybe not, isn't even really uh, much leadership or management going on. And then I guess the, the first sort of phase change is when you have an actual people manager managing the team of five or 10. And then there's that next big phase change that you're talking about right there when it really gets complicated and you have to do a lot of thought about yeah. how that new organization is going to look. Yeah. And I feel like one thing that's really important that can be easy to miss is you don't want to look at other organizations out in the world and say, I'll do what that person did because those people, like whatever that organization is, they have a different set of people and a different set of values and priorities that might not be ones that you share. And so if you're someone who is super collaborative and wants to build up a lot of ownership in the people around you, then you don't want to create any kind of a top-down structure. While you build up this intermediate management layer, you don't want to be giving them edicts. You want to be pulling them in, getting their advice, and, and using them because that's the kind of person you are and that's the kind of people that you have in your organization. So it really depends on who you are, what you want to build, and who the people are that you're going to build that with. Would you say that this is an important time to also consider and reconsider the culture of the company that you're building? I think it's a really good time to reaffirm the culture that you want and what parts of your culture are going to stay the same. Because change is always scary. The only thing that can sometimes make change a little bit less scary is if you feel like you have a lot of control over the situation. And so that's why when you have any kind of reorganization, the person who's creating the reorganization is going to have a lot less anxiety than any of the people who are experiencing that reorganization. And that's not to say that it's not it's going to be an anxiety-free situation for that person. It just means they're going to feel a lot less fear about the change because they have the most influence over it. When you're looking at a reorg, that's definitely a good time to look at what you want to keep the same. And then to be explicit and tell people, hey, don't worry, this is going to be the same in these specific ways. Things are going to change. That's going to feel kind of different and might feel a little bit weird. But these are the things that are going to stay the same and that you can expect to stay the same as we grow. Jean Su, uh, HSU, wrote a really good article about how to navigate reorgs and what kind of mistakes not to make in your first reorg. I really wish I had read that before the first time I did a reorg because I kind of made all of the mistakes that she outlined in to skip over. I, I like the way you're talking about that there because I, I think I also see an opportunity for, because you have to communicate the change, at that same time you have to communicate the, the values explicitly to the team. You have to make them visible to everyone rather than having it be maybe just baked into the culture or just everyone sort of assumes how things are work. You have to say, this is, these are the things that are going to change. These are the things that we value that to keep and, and not keep. And I really like that you like that at that time you're given that opportunity because that's, I think always nice to be able to make that into a public, not implied, uh, an overt expression of the values rather than leaving them implicit. Yeah, because if you leave them as implicit, people might be wondering, is this really the same organization I joined? Is there a place for me? And they don't really know for sure what's going on. I think that you've been given a lot of examples of, of people being thoughtful about this kind of process, and which I think is great. But I wonder, like, what if you have any advice or like, what would you do if the problem is that like people at an organization like aren't being as thoughtful about this process as they could be. I guess the question is like, how could you encourage someone who's not like already being thoughtful? Like I want to do this in a way that's really the best for everyone to encourage them that, Hey, this is really important. It's going to freak people out. You should really be coming at this from like a more empathetic way. Do you like, what would you do in that situation? That depends a lot on my relationship with that person. If they're one of my coaching clients, then I'll probably ask them questions about uh, what are your fears around this reorg? What do you anticipate happening? What kind of fears or objections do you expect to see? Are there any people that you're worried about? And to start to ask questions to shift their focus 
away from the logistics of the reorg to the people involved. And then based off of that, uh, start talking about ways to ameliorate that and make it easier and more comfortable for everyone involved. But that would be if I have a coaching client relationship with them. Are there instances that you're thinking of where you're wondering what someone ought to do, like uh, a, a peer manager or someone reporting to the manager or some other situation? I suppose I was wondering if you had advice, like, you know, a lot of us have been through these kind of situations at companies or organizations that we've been a part of, maybe not in upper management. I know I've seen situations where there's like unrest about it um, among the whole team. And I wonder if you would have any advice. I know this isn't quite um, like the same angle that you normally come at it from, but I wonder if you have any advice for like, what could a team do to express to their leadership? Like, Hey, we really are worried about this. We wish you would be more thoughtful. Maybe we wish you would consult with someone like Jennifer. (laughs) How would you approach that? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to repeat some advice I got early in my career, which made zero sense to me then, but hopefully it will make sense to, to someone who's listening. And that's when you are interacting with your manager You want to always be asking, how can I best support you? How can I make you look good? How can I make you accomplish what you want to accomplish? And so, especially when you're in a reorg, that's a really stressful situation because your work life is on the line. And that means like all of the relationships that you've been building up in that workplace, like there's a possibility they're going to end because you are going to have to leave. So that's a, that's a very stressful situation because you know, these work relationships are, are kind of weird in that you don't necessarily know or expect for them to continue. And it's, it's almost like people die w- when they leave or that people die when you leave them. So the first thing is to, to really acknowledge to yourself that that is where you are and that that's a fear that you have. And then take that fear and set it to the side. You know, don't try and ignore it, but set it to the side for a moment. And start thinking about what your manager is doing and why. So, so think about what is, what's the action that my manager just took? What, what are they proposing? Why is it that they are doing this? And then, um, if you have a relationship with that manager or, um, or that leader where you can ask them about things, ask them in a way where it's clear you're not just reacting about your feelings about the reorg or that because you don't want them to be to brush you off and be like, Ugh, engineers are always so scared of, of change. This is so annoying. They're just like children, right? You don't want them to have that kind of reaction. And so you want to ask questions like, I'm curious about uh, what you're hoping our department will be able to do as a result of this reorg. What kind of projects or initiatives will we be able to open up based off of this reorg? And try to understand why they've put together that reorg. Once you've done that, hopefully you'll be able to learn about why they've put together that reorg. And then you can do one of two things. One is if you really like what you've heard and you want to do the work for them, you can start doing the work of calming other people's fears by sharing what you've learned with them. The other thing that you can do, and again, this is based off of your relationship with that engineering leader, is, is say something along the lines of, wow, I feel so much better about this reorg. I'm very excited for what we can do. I wish that uh, there was some way that we could take this conversation and share it with all of the rest of the department because I know they would feel so much better and be just as excited as me if they knew all of this. Have you ever had encountered a situation where, you know, it's small, it's a small team or a small company that's beginning to reorganize in order to scale up? And some of the people that have been there for a while start saying, oh, you're articulating these values. I didn't think that those were the values that belong to this company. I thought they were something else. And that was the tension. Yeah, uh, sometimes that does happen. And it's not a bad thing, but it can be a very uncomfortable thing. And this isn't something original to me. I've heard lots of people say it. Sometimes the team that got you to where you are isn't the team that can get you to where you need to be. And it can feel bad. It can feel disrespectful. It can feel just wrong to to say, well, you got us here. You can't get us there. Goodbye. 
I, I don't really have anything I can say say to that beyond if you're the leader of that organization, you have to weigh two things. One is what is it that you're trying to accomplish with this business, right? Like you started this business for a reason or you joined this business for a reason. What is it that you're trying to accomplish? What is it that you can't do because of where you are right now? And then the other is the people who you are working with. And there's a difference between working with someone and really enjoying it and working with someone and being able to accomplish your goals for the business. Those are kind of the two things that you need to weigh and be able to move, move beyond. Because if you're working with someone because you really enjoy working with them, why are you doing a business together? Why not work on open source or do a volunteer projects together, right? If the whole point is to be in business together, at some point, you have to figure out how are we going to make it so that we can bring home the paychecks and get the results that we're looking for. Capitalism sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like you start each of your coaching encounters with asking a series of questions uh, because you need to know sort of what the situation is so that you can approach it. But I think you've also talked about questions as a form of communication and as a way of like, they, they themselves can be analyzed to extract lots of useful information. So do you want to talk about that some more? Yeah, so this is something that I've been learning about recently over the last couple of years. And by learning, I mean, messing up and figuring out how to mess up differently the next time. And one thing I've realized is that when we ask questions, we're not just finding answers, we're also telling the person who we're asking a question to something about ourselves or about them, right? Like if you think about when someone's asked you, let's say you've just pushed up a pull request and you get a ton of questions from the same person. What does that say to you about how that person feels about your pull request and your code? Does it feel like they're saying, oh my God, I'm so excited about your code. I can't wait to learn more about it. Or does it feel like they're saying your code is bad and you should feel bad? And I feel like it would depend on the tone of the questions. <laughs> but it's a pull request, right? So there is no tone. All you get is a bunch of questions. Wait, wait, here's a good question. What can give you tone in the questions in a pull request? I think you can definitely have tone in the questions in a pull request. Like sometimes I'll ask, like if I'm asking a bunch of questions, I'll like clarify, like I'm just trying to understand this because I want to understand it. And I'll like write that right in it. Yes. Yes, exactly. And so <laughs> you can't, I, I, I love that saying what your state is and how you're feeling towards the other person and the work that they're showing you is, is a way to ask better questions and to communicate about it in the questions. And so starting off things by saying, I like where you're going and I'm curious about, or I'm a little confused about this section. Can you help me understand? Like these are all ways to communicate tone, uh, like what you're saying and give the other person context about where you are and where they are in your standing and why they should feel comfortable and willing to engage with you. Yeah. I was thinking about this in the, in the context of, of email actually in, in some of my uh, discussion in, in a book club about a book called say what you mean about mindfulness and, um, and meditation and nonviolent communication. And one of the, the points in there is being very explicit about like you were saying, why you're asking and what, what you're asking. So rather than what, like some in an e like in an email example, Often I would lay out a paragraph worth of explanation for some information I want or something I want someone to do and then would not leave out like the explicit like and I would like you to do this for me part at the end because it felt like almost too demanding. Um, but through re analysis, I realized that I was just making it harder for them because then they had to interpret what it was I wanted out of the email rather than just reading the last line and saying yes or no. Um, and it's the same sort of thing where like you're talking about in the pull request where you're sort of stating like why you're asking the question, like what the context is around gathering that information. And, and I like that. Yeah. I recently started a podcast called Storytime with Managers. And I basically spend 20 minutes asking uh, whoever my guest is a bunch of questions about some area of expertise that they have that would help engineering managers. And one piece of feedback I got from a guest was she really liked the fact that I would say, I like this. 
to something that she said and then follow that with a question. And I realized that this is a habit that I picked up from Marco Rogers because he'll say things like, I like this or I hear you. And then he'll continue the conversation. So it's this like tiny bit of affirmation of I'm with you and I hear what you're saying and I appreciate what you are saying. One thing that makes that work is to not say I like this and then say the opposite of I like this or I hear you and then say something that sounds like, but I hate what you're saying. So that that is one important thing to do is to not try and mix your messages of saying, if I say I hear you, then I can say whatever else I want to hear or say whatever else I want to say. Yeah, I um again as part of that recent um book stuff I was doing, one of the points in there was that you can use like you were saying, you can use questions to communicate the fact that you've heard what the other person is saying. Like that in itself is a way of keeping the conversation going, affirming to the other person that you're hearing what they are because you can ask deepening questions that that prove to them that you are listening. Yeah. I think there's like a big difference between saying like why did you do it this way? And well, I guess it's like, it has to do with if you don't say, if you don't speak your intention for a particular question, it's going to be assumed the worst possible way. If if you're not giving your reason. So if you say, why did you do this? The default assumption is defend why you did it this way, because it's wrong, because I see that it's wrong. I think what I'm hearing you say is like you have to be intentional about why you would like to know or what where your question is coming from. Yeah. One piece of advice I've heard is to replace the question of why with what. And I think that's a really good first step, but you can't stop there. Because at one point I got a pull request back and I didn't get why questions, but I got a lot of what were you thinking about here questions. And the effect on me was still the same of feeling like, oh, this person hates my pull request, doesn't trust me as a developer, and now I need to write out paragraphs to explain why my work should be allowed to uh, be a part of the primary branch. And so I would say take one step further. Yes, switch from why to what. And also share a little bit about how you're feeling or how you feel towards the other person at the same time. I like where you're going with this. I want to do something similar. What brought you to this point? Yeah, that's a really good guardrail against the whole, like, because what were you thinking in conversation can be like, oh, cool. What were you thinking about when you wrote that? And it could be, what were you thinking? (laughs) And unless you defend against that in in text, it's going to be assumed to be the negative one. Yeah. I I did a talk about, in part about feedback and questions. And in a nutshell, when you're reviewing a PR, it seems to me that your first job is to, you need to understand as best as possible everything you can about where the author was coming from before you can really be empowered to give opinions. So it's kind of like you have to communicate like it's, it's my, it's my primary job to understand like what you were literally what you were thinking when you did it when you did it this way or that way and to communicate to the author that like it's your pull request you know the best about it and what i'm trying to do is be as enlightened about it as you are yeah exactly because you don't know the context or the pressures that they're under maybe the what they've been told by the management or by product is that this is something minor that needs to be done very quickly so that way the really important big work can start happening. And without that context, you don't know why someone is making this, the decisions that they're making. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like not only having empathy for the person who wrote it, but almost having empathy for the code itself, like understanding like why it ended up in that state and why it looks like what it looks like. And, and I like that this applies, I think, in, in code reviews. Because that's like a real-time feedback. But also when you're in in a project that's quote-unquote legacy, where you're looking at code somebody wrote however many years ago, and you think, boy, this is terrible code. But it's the same thought process to think, oh, wait, no, what, what constraints were they under when they wrote this? Like, understanding that context would probably explain exactly why it looks like the way it looks. Yeah, this is reminding me of what we were talking about earlier about people. Because sometimes you have people who 
got you to where you are, but can't get you to where you need to be. And code is the same way because code was written by people. So the code that got you to where you are now might not be the code that can get you to where you need to be in exactly the same way as the people who got you there. And I also think that like deleting old code is like a skill because I used to be like really emotional about like, I don't, but I wrote this code and now I love to delete code. And I think that like, that was something that I had to really think about, like getting rid of that attachment and kind of adopting like a new mindset about like, it's not forever. It's not like my code isn't who I am. And if it was, I don't want it to be because I'm learning more and like my new code is better than my old code. And But like it took time. I actually almost got pegged for plagiarism when I was in college because I like refused to delete my own old code and I got in trouble for it. I'm like, no, I wrote both of those. And they're like, then why didn't you take it out of your project? I'm like, I don't know, because I was sad about it. Because they hadn't taught you revision control. They should have learned better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like in addition to the feelings you might have about deleting your own code, there's also the feelings of the people who wrote the code who aren't you. And if they're not around, then it's a little bit easier to look and say, oh, something was happening here that I can't see, but there were definitely outside influences I can't see that led to this. And it's it's easier to to say that when there's no one around, because then you can just practice it by yourself and practice saying that and getting into that mentality. It gets a little bit harder when someone is there because one of the most common reactions is to feel a lot of shame about the code. And so people will kind of mumble and say, uh, it's really bad code. And they'll start telling you about how awful it is and how glad they are that you're taking it out. And that can be kind of tricky to know how to navigate. So when you run into situations like that, do take the time to stop the other person and say, hey, your code got us and this business to where it is today. It's not getting us to where we need to be tomorrow, but we wouldn't be here today if it hadn't been for that code that you wrote. Is it code you're proud of? Is it code that you like? Is it code you want to keep? That doesn't matter. It's the code that you needed to write at that time to get us to where we are today. So thank you for doing that. And that's not something that comes easily. That's not something that is going to roll right off your tongue um, the first time you try to say it. So don't worry about it and just keep practicing it because you're going to have plenty of opportunity to delete code. So you're going to have plenty of opportunity to learn how to say that. Yeah, I like that a lot. It's almost like um, like a Marie Kondo sort of thing. You thank it for for what it did for you before (laughs) releasing it. This resonates a lot with me because I was the first engineer at my company. So there's a lot of like old code in our code base from when the product was new. I wasn't the first engineer, but I'm the the longest one still there. And there's a lot of old code that people will come to me and be like, well, what's up with this? And like usually not in a mean way. And sometimes I can be like, oh, here's all the like, here's all the stuff that was going on in our company way back then. And sometimes I have to be like, I don't know, there were two of us and we were rushed and I had been co- I had been a programmer for like two years and now I've been a programmer for like six years. So like, yeah, my code was bad then. And like I do, I feel defensive about it. I'm like, what? Like I've, I've had people come to me and I know they're coming from like a place of like caring to be like, hey, I wanted to like, you know, point this out. Like, here's a better way you could have done this. And they want, you know teach me something but it's like it's difficult for me because like yeah great you're teaching three years ago me something that i know now (laughs) and it's like frustrating and it's but it's also hard because i know that they're not trying to be condescending to me they're trying to like have a caring conversation about like both of us as engineers trying to get better at our craft so it's like a it's a difficult line sometimes can i ask how you respond to that I don't know. I I have gotten defensive in the past. I try not, not to get defensive. But like, I have pointed out like, you know, mistakes that I've made three years ago that just happened to still be in our code base, like aren't reflective of my skill as an engineer. And like, I hope you can recognize that. And that's gone over okay. Yeah, that's a good way to respond. I want to learn things. And I don't want people to stop teaching me things. And so, like, I don't want to be like, you know, don't teach me that because I already know it because 
even if I feel like that about some things, like I don't want to turn people off of teaching me other things because I do want to have that kind of relationship with people. Yeah. But it's hard not to get defensive when it's like, I know that already. Yeah. I was just noticing how much you have to navigate both the embarrassment and the, the shame and also the frustration all at once in this continuous way because you're still there. I also think, and I've talked to this, um, I've talked about this to my coworkers, and actually I wonder if I would pose it to you and get your opinion on it. Because like teaching someone too much things that they already know can be condescending. But then on the other hand, assuming that people know things and they don't is also like frustrating and can be condescending because then it's hard. So like there's the line of like, where are you going to draw the line in like, I'm not sure if you know this or not. So either I can explain to something you already know condescendingly or make you feel bad when I assume you know it and you don't. Like, how do you make your decision on that? Yeah. First, I want to say I like the way that you're responding. Like, I feel like that's a very admirable way to respond. (laughs) And I'm carefully filing it away for if someday I'm ever in the same situation. In terms of what your colleagues could change... I think if there was one thing that you might be able to ask them to to consider, and you would need to bring this up in some kind of reflective context, like possibly not even a weekly retro, but more like a quarterly offsite retro kind of a level, would be reminding people, hey, I started working here as someone of two years of experience, and I now have six years of experience. So you've seen in this code base, you're going to see a very very wide range of what Jamie's code development has been. And ask people, when you want to share something with me, can you please check the date of when it was done? And if it was more than a year ago, please bear that in mind. That's a great point. It reminds me a little bit of um, your business partner, Betsy Habel, uh, in her talk on pairing, has a a phrase called non-consensual teaching which I think sort of applies here. And I think you could probably head off some of these things by simply asking a question before you launch into explaining what the improvement is. Say, you know, this was really weird. You know, do you want me to talk? Like, do you want to talk a little bit about how we, how this might be improved versus saying, oh, and we can use the lonely operator here because it's so much better than blah, 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 blah. And so that might be a way to head some of that off. Although I don't know that I'm, particularly adept at deploying that question before launching into an explanation. <laughs> I think it's a personal preference thing too, because as as much as I just told this story, I would actually personally prefer being taught something I already know where I can just be like, Oh, it's cool. Fine. I knew that. So don't worry. Then like someone glossing over something that I don't know, because then I have to be like, wait, stop, 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 go back. I don't know about that. And that's more difficult for me, but I'm sure that there are other people that feel about it the opposite way. <laughs> is it a matter of, I don't know, asking, would it be helpful to tell you about this or that pattern? And if they say no, then you just move on. Since John said non-consensual teaching, like, is it just a matter of <laughs> asking like, hey, would you like to know about what an observable is? Or do you know about that now? And we can just move on and assume that, you know, you won't. <laughs> Definitely. When we ask a question like, do you want to know about the observable pattern? It's making an an assumption that the other person doesn't know about the observable pattern. And I wonder if there's a way to ask that in a not long-winded way that that could show that you think the other person does have that knowledge or that maybe they had it, but they were under some pressures or some context you can't see to not apply it or, or things like that. Yeah, that would certainly be a better approach. Harder, but better. <laughs> Can we workshop this for a minute? Because I don't have a really obvious thing to, to say, and I feel like the the four of us working together could figure this out. Sure. I mean, I guess one way to approach it would be, for example, um, hey, I was looking at this code. We have to make some changes to this module because XYZ, and I was thinking of using the observer pattern to handle this situation. Like, what do you think? Like, would, I mean, that's still sort of a plot, like that they still have to assert ignorance if they don't, if they don't know what that is or how to use it. But, you know, at least I, it may be slightly softer landing. I've had people ask me, do you know about X? And like, 
I feel like that's kind of neutral because it's not really assuming either way. Like, I guess there is an assumption. Like, I could see someone being like, of course I know about it. But, like, I think it's pretty easy in general, if you do know, be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do. Or like, oh, actually, no. I was hoping you would ask, you know? It's also not great if you just go ahead and assume that everyone knows exactly as much as you do. Because then no one can learn from anyone. Right. And maybe... They know about the observer pattern, but they also know about a different pattern that you're not familiar with, and that's the one they applied, and you just don't recognize it. I suppose that could also open them. If you said, like, do you know about the observer pattern? And I could be like, yeah, do you know about this other pattern? <laughs> <laughs> that came out a little bit more hostile than I hoped it would when I said it, but I don't <laughs> necessarily think it has to be hostile. I thought it came out delightfully snarky. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't trying to be snarky, though. But here, here, so here's one thing I noticed, which is when you turned the question back around, it kind of showed the weaknesses of the original question, right? Like there's something about that sentence structure that doesn't sit quite right. And that's why it feels a little snarky or a little hostile when you ask it back. One thing I wonder is um, if you might be able to approach it by saying, um, I, I really liked John's lead in of hey, we need to make these changes in this part of the code base to do X, Y, and Z. What I would add might be something like, one thing I was thinking while I was looking here is this might be a good place to use the observer pattern. What do you think of that? Mm, yeah, that's good. It's a much much clearer invitation to explain why it wasn't used or say, yes, that's a great idea, or what is the observer pattern? Yeah, and this might be a personal preference thing, so I'm curious what you think. I feel like it's not so bad to say, I don't know, what's the observer pattern? Or, I don't know, can you remind me what the observer pattern is? And I'm wondering what you think of if that would feel like a validating thing to, to say, or if it would feel intimidating to say so. Validating for, for whom? Uh, for the person who who says, I don't know what that is. I think this is hard to judge, too, because I think it depends a lot on my previous interactions with that person. Like, I think that if someone has been happy to teach me about things in the past and hasn't been judgmental, it would... I mean, I like to ask questions. I'm often the person that will ask, like, wait, stop, I don't know what that is. Partially because I feel like if I don't know, there's probably other people that don't know and are going to be glad that I asked and listened to the explanation for me. So if someone has been open to that before, I think it would be very easy in that situation to be like, oh, I'm not sure. Can you tell me about it? But like with other people, even if the wording is the same, it might be more difficult. Yeah, that's that, that's true. One of the things I think about sometimes is the way that I receive and accept questions definitely changes based off of both my personal history with that person, or if I don't have a personal history with that person, my perception of where we are relative to each other around privilege, right? And so if someone with a lot more privilege than me is going to ask me a question with no context, then that's going to feel very different than if someone I know and who they know has less privilege than me asked the same question. Not that privilege is something that you can measure and quantify and compare, but that it is something where you can have a differential and that does exist. One, I think one quick note I wanted to throw in real, real related to especially like looking at code and trying to understand it and, and decide to rewrite it. We were talking about how much fun it is to delete code, but I also wanted to sort of call out a particular thing that, that certainly afflicted me early in my career as a developer which is, I don't understand this code, therefore it's bad code, therefore we should delete it and rewrite the code myself because I understand the code that I have written. <laughs> and so I, now at this point I try and, and guard against that like instinct, like I don't get this, it must be bad code. But I just want to sort of call out that little exception to the like how much fun it is to delete code discussion. Yeah. To add to that, something I was thinking earlier was I am almost from the opposite perspective as, as Jamie, which is that... I am a relatively new employee with a company that's been around for a while. And a lot of people have been around for a while that are still there. And we have a product that's been around for a while. And one thing that I always feel 
in conflict about is to what extent am I allowed to change things and to, and to what extent do I need to just work with it set up already? To what extent is it okay to send in a PR with just a whole sea of red and me rewriting something? It, yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing to navigate. Yeah, especially since part of the reason that you're there is to bring in this fresh new perspective and shake things up because that's how organizations grow is by bringing in new ideas, new perspectives, and then using that to, to become a more, a, a more diverse and uh, thoughtful organization. But you don't want to do it at, in such a way that you create stop energy because people are resisting that change. Part of the problem with changing communication styles like this uh, is that it involves, uh, like you were saying earlier, a whole bunch of time you have to spend being bad at it uh, before you're good at it. And that generally feels bad, and it's hard to get through that phase uh, before you get to that um, what unconscious competence phase of, of learning. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit more about like that what that process looks like and if there are ways that we can navigate that that improve the feeling of it. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I was learning to do something new and I felt really embarrassed about something, which was I wasn't enjoying learning. And I felt like everyone else around me was talking about how they loved learning. They loved learning and they loved growing. And I felt like I was the only person who was feeling like I don't like learning. And that felt like some kind of secret shame that I had to not admit. And then when I finally did admit it, the feedback that I got from people around me was, of course you don't. No one does, which was a really big surprise to me because everyone was saying, I love learning. And one thing that I was able to learn from that is we like learning when we're in that, what did you call it? The um, something competent stage? Unconscious competence or even conscious competence. Yeah. Yeah, but when we've reached a modestly competent point where we're able to learn quickly, the effort we put in gets us very quick reward. But there's a flailing stage or a period in which we feel like we're flailing that doesn't feel good. We feel like we're drowning and that we're never going to learn how to swim. And that's a really, really uncomfortable feeling because you know you're not succeeding and it doesn't feel good. Is, is it is it sort of the feeling like you're learning in public? And you're sort of being tested as you learn it for the first time and you are worried about, cause that's how I feel. Like it, it's, it's never, it's always really difficult for me when I am learning something for the first time and it's in front of other people and they can see not only how little I know about the topic, but I'm being tested in my ability to be a learner. Yeah. I think that that could be part of it. I, I think there's also, have you heard of fixed versus growth mindset? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So fixed mindset means that uh, you kind of feel like whatever you are, you you are and you, you can't change. So you might think, um, I'm good at math, but I'm bad at sports. And then that means you never try to do sports because you're bad at it. And if you struggle with math, then your entire identity might be called into question. And then growth mindset is thinking, this is something I can learn. And so you might say something like, I don't know too much about sports, but I'm going to try. And so for me, I'm someone who comes a lot more from a fixed mindset. And learning to adopt a growth mindset is something that has been a process for me over the last few years. And that means for me, when I, when I struggle with growth, and I struggle with the feelings of learning doesn't feel good because I'm not getting it right away. That's all my old fixed mindset speaking up and saying, you're trying to learn this thing, but it's not something you're good at, so you can't. And so for me, because of that, what I need to do when I have that situation, well, for me personally, what I do is I, I turn to people outside of me who are good at growth mindset, who have experience thinking in growth mindset and get their feedback and their perspective on where I am and what state I'm in and hearing them say things like, 
you're learning and it doesn't feel good because you're exploring and you're going to get there because of X, Y, and Z helps me be able to shift into a mindset in which I can say, this is uncomfortable because I am acting in a very incompetent way and I want to be competent and I'm going to get there. I've said this quote on the show before, but I think about it literally all the time. It's from Adventure Time. Everyone else on Greater Than Code like quotes Virginia Satir and I'm like, Adventure Time. But Jake says, sucking at something is the first step to being sort of good at something. <laughs> oh, that's really good. And I think about it all the time when I suck at things. I'm like, don't worry, someday I'll be sort of good. And if I'm lucky, maybe someday I'll be really good. <laughs> I really like how modern comics and TV shows are, are teaching things like this. I took a dance class in college and pretty much everyone was, was not a, a dancer. It was, it was sort of everyone was sort of a beginner. Something our teacher said is that like, if you're like feeling the most frustrated with X or, you know, like you're struggling the most in the class, that is like the indication that by the end of this class, you're going to be the best at it and you're going to teach everyone else about it. And the reason is that that she said was like, like your frustration is an indication that like you are not willing to give this up. You have like sunk your teeth into it and you are going to continue to pull on it until you're able to bite it off and really understand. And yeah, when you said that, Jamie, that, that's what it made me think of. That's a really good teacher. Yeah. Yeah, right? I think it's somewhat recognizing like the fact that you are bothered by that you can't learn something speaks well to you that you wanna you wanna master it. Yeah, that's actually a really great reframe. Because I mean simply saying that like this is uncomfortable to you because you care and because you want to get better. Like that just reflects back on the character of, of you as, as yourself and, and makes it into a positive thing, uh, which could probably carry you through some of those moments of of like, oh, my God, what the hell am I doing here? This reminds yeah. me of kind of the trope of like when someone's really worried that they're not being thoughtful to other people or whatever. And like usually the people that are worried about if they're being thoughtful aren't the same people that are being really unthoughtful because those people don't worry about it. <laughs> so this has been a really awesome conversation, but unfortunately all of our episodes eventually have to end. And we like to end our episodes by letting everyone go back and bring up something as a reflection, maybe something that um, really spoke to them, maybe something that they want to keep thinking about, maybe a call to action that they got from our conversation today. I think something that's really sticking with me is in this talk about questions and, and what they reveal about the question asker. Like they're not only communicating like I would like to know information or I would like action to happen, but also like what's my current state? Am I agitated? Uh, what are my or, or calm or curious or and also what is my what are my goals? Like what exactly am I trying to get out of? what it is I'm asking, like, and, and thinking more thoroughly about what questions are being asked of me, I think will be a useful way of just learning more about people and, and, and the people I'm talking to and what their needs are. And so that's something I'm going to chew on for a while. I don't really have an answer for this, but something that is striking me as probably a really big challenge for a hiring manager that cares about growth mindset and isn't in a growth mindset is how, just how hard that would be to measure, particularly for someone you don't know very well that you're interviewing. Because, you know, if, if you, if you really subscribe to a fixed mindset, I, I, I think it would be relatively easy to measure, like, how much do you know right now? But asking to what degree are you committed to being a, like a continuous learner? That would, that would be a lot more difficult. And if you're trying and trying to hire for that, while I think is you want to have teams of people that are really committed to, you know, a growth mindset. I have no idea how that would be properly measured. I guess for my reflection, I'm thinking about the conversation about like reorganization at the beginning. Um, it really resonated with me because like I'm at a company that's kind of in that growth time and it has been challenging. And one thing that um, Jennifer said was about the people who have the most control over the situation are also the people that are going to have the least anxiety. 
which I guess like stuck out to me because like when she said it, it sounded so obvious, but I hadn't really thought about it quite that way before. And so I think there's like other angles of that that I kind of want to chew on. Like how can I reduce my own anxiety by feeling like I have more control or like how can I communicate to the people that do have control over things like, Hey, maybe you don't realize the level of anxiety that other people have. And I think that's like a really great way to frame that conversation um, where I can see like a conversation being really productive rather than um, frustrating, like starting out with that. So that's cool. And I'm going to keep thinking about it. Yay. One thing that I noticed was when we took that time to workshop how we might ask a better question, it reminded me that learning to ask better questions isn't something that you can do easily in a vacuum. And if you're struggling with how do I say this better, the best thing to do is to ask other people for help and to pick a time like a retro or a quarterly offsite to say, how can we do this better together? And then taking the time to figure that out together. Yeah, I love that. So correct. Jennifer, it was so wonderful having you on the show. I'm so excited that you came on. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. 